text for this morning's message is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each man will have to bear his own load. Who is in danger in this passage of Scripture? It's a very important question. According to verse 1, somebody has been overtaken in a trespass. Somebody's sin has come to light in the community. He was caught spending the weekend with another woman. Her lie to the welfare people has been detected and there are many back payments. His tax evasion has come to light. The source of the rumor in the church has been fingered. We know who started it. Her constant belittling of her husband is now known by virtually everyone. There's a transgression in the church. People know about it. Who's in danger in this situation of discovery and restoration? Whom does Paul spend five verses warning about the dangers of pride? The one who has fallen? Every verse has a big yellow light in it that's flashing caution, 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 and they are addressed to the one who is going to help the fallen person, not to the fallen person. Somebody asked me um, back in the spring after I'd preached a couple months here on Galatians why I was so hung up on, preoccupied with, obsessed with pride and self-reliance and self-exaltation. They seem to find their way into every message And I've thought a lot about whether or not that's a private hobby horse of mine that I ride too much. And this morning, as I look at this text, I feel confirmed that I'm not weaving more black into the tapestry of this letter than is already there. If a doctor wants to address his... his, uh, interns, or a teacher in a medical school wants to address the doctors about the manifold diseases caused by one particular virus, in all likelihood, he will, in every lecture, refer to that virus. There is one virus that causes all the moral diseases in the world, and it is pride, or self exaltation or self-reliance. Therefore, it's very fitting that we go after it all the time. It's been that case 
ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because they didn't want to trust God, they wanted to be God. And it'll be that way until the final outbursts of pride are crushed at the Battle of Armageddon. There's only one basic moral issue in the world that we have to deal with. How to overcome the relentless urge of the human heart to assert itself against the authority and grace of God. Everything else is a disease that comes from this virus. Why else would Paul devote four-fifths of this paragraph addressed to spiritual people to help them bear burdens to warn them about the dangers of the pride lurking in their own hearts? Before we go on to the text and uh, unpack it this morning, one other observation. In first, no, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says concerning his apostolic labors, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Now that means that when he wrote Galatians 6, 1 through 5, and when I preach on Galatians 6, 1 through 5, our aim is your joy. The battle against pride is the battle for joy. If you ask the question, how can we keep the uh, breezes of uh, the spirit of joy, love, peace, blowing through the fellowship at Bethlehem? You know what I think the answer is? The way to keep that breeze blowing through our fellowship is to recognize and do battle with the window-slamming effects of self-reliance. To fight pride may sound negative. It is all for the good. Joy is destroyed by our pride in manifold ways. The wind of joy will blow most clean when you and I have felt and seen that sin keeps joy from being wide and every sin takes root in pride. Now let's look at the text and see how Paul does it. The text has a main point that is stated generally in verse 2 and specifically in verse 1. So let's take the general point first and then zero in on that specific one. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's simple. That's simple enough for a child to understand. If you see a sister or brother carrying a load that's tending to crush them down, help them. Don't look the other way. Don't hole up in your living room. Help them. Don't let them be crushed. Don't let them be destroyed. Don't let them go on carrying what you can help them carry. Don't be like the Pharisees whom Jesus said, Build burdens and load them on men's shoulders and won't lift one finger to move them. Don't make people's burdens heavier. Make them lighter. Some of you have, have asked the question, what can I do with my life? What's life all about anyway? How can I get real significance and devote myself to something worthwhile? Well, here it is in two little simple steps. 
Something that will give you more satisfaction than if you became a millionaire ten times over. One, develop the extraordinary skill of detecting when somebody's bearing a burden. And two, devote yourself daily to making them lighter. And when you come to die, if that has been your vocation, you will lay down in peace. And if we do that, Paul says here in verse 2, we will fulfill the law of Christ. That's an odd phrase in Galatians. The law of Christ. A book that says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Or Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Have we been delivered from the burden and guilt of the Mosaic law just to be delivered into the hands of a more radical law of Christ? I don't think the answer to that question is yes. And the difference I see is this. Moses gave us a law and that's all he could give us. No help. No power. Moses could not hold your hand so that you slay the dragon of pride. When Jesus summons you to come obey his law, he summons you to himself. And in fellowship with the living, reigning Christ, you gain power. The inside out is changed so that his commands are not burdensome because he is fulfilling them through us. Remember that sentence at the mouth of the cave last week? I never command you to do one thing that I want you to do on your own. Which means that every command of the law of Christ is a summons to believe Him, trust Him, walk with Him, lean on Him. little summary of the book of Galatians would be that we rest on Christ and get the Spirit and through the Spirit are enabled to fulfill the law of Christ. To be sure, Jesus said that his law is more radical than that of the scribes and Pharisees. You must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. But in spite of that, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, yoke the yoke of my law upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke. The yoke of my law is, is easy and my burden is light. The law of Christ is easy not because it's greasy, slippery, permissive, but because when we are weak, he is strong within us. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me, doing his law for me. Let me give you that little summary again. According to verse 5 of chapter 3, it is through faith that we receive the Holy Spirit and he becomes powerful within us. Then, according to chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of love comes by that Spirit. And then, 
In chapter 6, verse 2, we see that love fulfills the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's the main point of the passage. Now, in verse 1, Paul zeroes in on one particular burden that we must help each other bear. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. We tend to think of burdens, don't we, in terms of sickness, unemployment, loss of a loved one, loneliness, rejection, and we're right. And if you see anybody carrying that load and you have an ounce of strength in you, you should help them carry it. But Paul has another one in mind here in verse 1. Namely, trespasses. Not only are those who bear loads victims, some are culprits in the church. So I think we should define burden like this. Anything that tends to threaten or crush the joy of faith, that's a burden. Whether it is the loss of a loved one or some awful personal relation that is threatening your life and joy, or whether it is some sin that you have committed that is threatening to lead you to guilt and judgment. We ought to be about the business of lifting these kinds of burdens off of each other. Paul says, restore him, a person taken in a sin. Restore him. That word restore doesn't mean first get him back into the fellowship. He may not be out. The word means repair him, fix him up so he's not wrong but right. It's used of mending broken nets in Matthew 4.21. It means Sin is a breakdown in the machinery of life. And when you see somebody under the burden of that breakdown, you stop and you become a merciful mechanic and help them get their car in good, godly, running order. In other words, nobody who lives by the law of Christ can say when they see somebody sinning, that's their problem. Not my problem. I don't have to burden myself with that mess. You can't talk like that if you're living under the law of Christ. But I've been around Bethlehem long enough now to know that's exactly the way some of you think about sin in the community here. I know some attitudes and some behaviors in this church that are so contrary to the word of Christ that they should have been confronted and repaired years ago. By you. But for whatever reason, there is an atmosphere of silence and neglect. Not forgiveness, mind you, because there's talk aplenty about those sins behind closed doors. It may take us a long time. I won't give up. I pray that we will cultivate an atmosphere at Bethlehem where love for each other is so rugged, so great, so deep, 
that we take the breakdown of sin very seriously and serve each other as merciful mechanics instead of driving by your problem. You go to Jesus. Ultimately, Christ is the mechanic, the only mechanic who can fix our jalopies. And therefore, when it says you restore the broken down person, what does it mean? It means primarily lead them to Jesus. Take them Jesus. Point them to Jesus. That's the only way to help anybody taken in a sin. There will be forgiveness. There will be healing and strengthening. You don't have it. That's the way we get them to the great mechanic. So that's the main point now. In its general form, bear each other's burdens. In its specific form, take on yourself the burden of confronting a person that you know has a rotten attitude. Now, the, uh, the trouble that we need to help people with is sometimes greater than we desire to mess with. And it's hard. If it seems easy to you to help people bear the burden of sickness and loneliness and unemployment and loss of a loved one and rejection, say, I, I, I'll get involved with that because I, I can help them with that. But, whoa, I'm not going to go up to anybody and say, I think that you've been sinning. If that's your uh, attitude, meditate on this truth. A sinful attitude or a sinful act is vastly more harmful to a person than any of those other burdens. And if you love them, if your love is not a sham, if you love them, you will not only comfort them in their trouble, but confront them in their sin. Wouldn't it be great to belong to a family of believers who loved each other so much that they simply could not look away when they see a sin happening? Let's be that family. If we don't, we won't fulfill the love of Christ, the law of Christ, or the love of Christ. Now, that's the main positive point. Let's now see how Paul warns us against how to do it, or against doing it wrongly. Notice, he does not warn against correcting and admonishing and restoring a person, but against doing it arrogantly, wrongly. Unlike some of us, Paul will not throw out the baby of confrontation with the bathwater of pride. Paul does not say, you're all sinners, and you're all proud, and you've all fallen, therefore don't you dare point your finger at anybody and say they've sinned. That's the way you and I tend to talk to get ourselves off the hook. Paul doesn't talk that way. Paul says, you've all sinned, you all struggle with pride, therefore watch it when you undertake in love and meekness to restore a brother or a sister. Look to yourself. Get the log out of your eye before you go splinter picking. The bath water of pride has got to go. 
but the good, healthy, chubby, bouncy, happy baby of confrontation in meekness has to stay. Otherwise, we will not fulfill the law of Christ. I assume, from this point on in the sermon, that all of those who belong to Christ here are with me. You want to do it, and you are praying in your heart right now, God, forgive me for my fear and my waywardness in the past. From here on out, I'm going to do that by your strength. So now we can proceed and let the yellow light start flashing. Caution. Caution. There is a way to do it, and there is a way not to do it. Verse 1 says, you who are spiritual, restore him. That's the criterion number one. And my guess is some of you are saying, leave me out. Paul does not mean upper echelon Christianity when he says you who are spiritual. He means normal, spirit-filled Christianity. If you want a good definition for spiritual, just go back up and read verses 16 to 25 of the preceding chapter. It means led by the Spirit. Verse 18, walk by the Spirit. Verse 16, bear the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, a spiritual person is a person leaning on the Spirit. And enabled by the Spirit to bear the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and meekness. That's the connection between verse 22 of chapter 5 and verse 1 of chapter 6. That word meekness or gentleness. You who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And if you're bearing the fruits of the Spirit, then you are equipped to go to a person and point out their sin and help get them repaired under the great mechanic. Look to yourself, Paul says. What are you supposed to see when you look to yourself? Somebody great? No. Look to yourself to see whether you're leaning on the Spirit. Look to yourself to see whether you are a self-reliant or a God-reliant person. Whether you are self-righteous or are depending on Christ for your righteousness. Therefore, total reliance on the Holy Spirit will produce meekness, and meekness is the twin sister of humility, and humility is the exact opposite of pride. And if you go to a person in that spirit, they will not be able rightly to be offended. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Which implies that if you're leaning on the Holy Spirit for the gift of love through you, and you are moved by that gift of love to go to somebody and help them with a sin problem, you cannot boast. It is all of God. Whatever degree of maturity you have attained, whatever boldness you manifest, whatever meekness you're able to show, it is all of God. Why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Examine yourself then. Are you a needy child leaning on the Father for help? Or are you a self-reliant person who will no doubt call much attention to yourself and do nobody any good? Verse 3. Verse 3 is the most radical attack on pride in the passage. Notice that it is given as a ground or a basis for what 
went before. He's saying, in effect, to sum up the first two verses, bear each other's burdens. Specifically, take on yourself the burden of confronting another person in meekness. For, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul's assessment of why you might not be doing this or why you might be doing it arrogantly is exactly the opposite of the assessment of the 20th century and why you may not be doing this or doing it arrogantly. If you don't have enough so-called assertiveness to approach a person and confront them with their sin. Or you're overloaded with assertiveness and are very puffed up in the way you confront somebody with their sin. 90% of the pastors and counselors in America today will tell you that your problem is you don't have enough self-esteem. It is the universal diagnosis of almost every malady. And it is exactly the opposite of Paul's diagnosis. Paul says that your problem is that you think you're something when you're nothing. That's why you don't confront a brother or a sister taken in a fault. That's why when you do it, you do it arrogantly. And I'll bet somebody is saying, oh no, not me. I don't stay back from confrontation because I'm proud. I stay back because I'm scared. Like a puppy. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 51.12 I, I am he that comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens. Who do you think you are to be afraid of man? Sounds strange to you that he would talk like that? You think your fear is a sign of humility? Thus saith the Lord, it is rooted in your pride. Who do you think you are? To be afraid of man who dies. When I, the Lord who stretched out the heavens, am your maker and your redeemer. So the word of God remains firm. The reason we fail in the church to obey the law of Christ is because we think we are something when we are nothing. Now, Paul is speaking morally, so don't quibble with him like a seven-year-old. He knows that he's standing there, and somebody say, look, that's something, I'm something, I'm not nothing. He knows that you're something in that sense. Paul is speaking about moral reality here. He is saying that apart from the living grace of Christ, you amount to a moral zero. Romans 7, 18. There dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, what I am apart from God, no good thing. 
John 15, 5, Jesus, sweet, loving Jesus said to me and you, apart from me, you can do nothing. You believe that? That's a moral reality he's talking about. You come back at him and say, sure I can. I can jump up and down. You will show how far you are from the kingdom. Morally, you are capable of zero apart from Jesus Christ because of the depravity of our own heart. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And I could just let the text keep right on going to confirm to you that this is not an isolated statement in the New Testament. As far as moral capacities are concerned, you and I, apart from the supernatural special revelation and special grace of God in Christ through the Spirit, are nothing. And can say one thing, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But then God answers that prayer and he is merciful. And Christ enters your life and enables you to love. And and many of you would complete that sentence by saying, and now we can start talking about self-esteem. Not me. No way. I only want to talk about one thing after that. Christ-esteem. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You know, here's my substitute for the self-esteem motif of healing. What we need to break out of the shackles of our assertive pride and our timid pride is not the buttressing of our self-esteem, but a massive confidence in the incomparable Christ who came into the world to save unworthiest of sinners and empower them for life anew through His Spirit. If you look only to Christ instead of the mirror, If you look only to Christ for forgiveness, guidance, love, joy, power, and in that spirit, you approach a person who's been taken in sin, they will not smell any pride on you. And you will do them good because you will be a mirror of Jesus. Jesus is the only mechanic who can heal. Well, we've got to finish up here. Briefly, verses 4 and 5. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own burden or his own load. Now, those are strange verses because they both sound exactly the opposite of what we just said. Verse 5 sounds just the opposite of verse 2. Verse 2 said, bear each other's burdens. Verse 5 says, every man's going to bear his own load. Verse 5. Four says, uh, you're going to have something to boast in, in yourself, which sounds just the opposite of verse three, you're nothing. 
Well, let me try to give you briefly what I think these verses mean and how they relate to the point. Verse 4 means something like this, I think. In measuring the value, the moral value of your own achievements, don't use anybody else's achievements for the standard of your measurement. If you do, you will undoubtedly find people who have fallen lower than you and puff yourself up. Don't let anybody's fall be an occasion for your rise. You see, Paul is so sensitive to the danger that if we have our antennas up for anybody who's bearing the burden of sin, we might also have the antennas of our pride up saying, well, goody, I never fell prey to that. What a good boy am I. Pastors are especially vulnerable to this. Pastor, hearing news, there's trouble across town. Whoa, the insidiousness to feel didn't happen to us. You know how you've done it. You see somebody who blew something you succeeded in, a sin you never committed, and the immediate result is to give yourself points because you see that. Our pride just loves to see people fall when we have stood. And Paul says, stop feeding your pride by comparing yourself to those who sin. Don't measure your moral achievements by what others have done. Then, if you have anything left to boast in, it's going to be in you alone and not because you're comparing yourself with some stumbling brother or sister. But that leaves the question, do we have anything in ourselves to boast in? Drop down 10 verses to verse 14 and see how Paul views boasting. He has a very peculiar and wonderful view of boasting. It's the same word used here as in verse 4. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.31 Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Romans 15:17 In Christ Jesus I have reason to boast in things pertaining to God for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Yes, Christians can boast in Christ and his grace and his mercy and his cross and his spirit and what he enables them to do Christ esteem not self esteem verse 5 is not a contradiction to verse 2 and I think the way you can tell that it's not is it begins with the word for which shows that it is uh, an extension and support for verse 4 Don't compare yourself with anybody else in order to lighten your load of guilt. For you got to bear your own load in the judgment. When the final assessment comes, it won't be a comparative assessment. 